Welcome to Toronto Today. Jim Taddy reporting for the next hour. Then it is off to gameplay with Matt Cause, then off to overdrive. And later on tonight, I'm going to football live here on TSN 1050. An interesting day when I woke up, I was looking around going, okay, so not a lot of sports action last night. There was a Thursday night football game with an intriguing, almost sloppy ending, but nonetheless, it was still fun to watch. And we'll get into that uh, coming up on the broadcast. Two guests today, Josh Lewenberg, bottom of the hour, talking about uh, what the Raptors are up to, and uh, more specifically, Pascal Siakam, which will develop uh, very shortly. And uh, Zig Fricassi will stop by in about three or four minutes to talk about uh, the NFL and maybe splice in some hockey talk as well. He's uh, with SiriusXM, does the NFL coverage, and contributes on the NHL side as well. So the Pascal Siakam story was uh, a piece from the New York Times. Uh, and, uh, you know, as I read it, I thought, okay, so I, I can understand. Like, he got the uh, the uh, the contract, the max contract, after they won the NBA championship, and he played very well in that NBA championship run, you remember. And so he's handed the max contract. And there seems to be some sort of um, uh, confusion about what his role would be and, and what that max contract meant to him and what it meant to the team. And, you know, some of this is just market value. But it, we'll, we'll explore this with Josh because I came away from the article thinking that Pascal thought it meant something different than what it did uh, so there was an adjustment there and of course last year with the covid uh, and now sh- uh, shoulder surgery uh, you know things sometimes you project them based on what the guys sign for and how this should turn out and the reality is quite different so there's a bit of a struggle there uh, and uh, we'll go through that uh, as we motor along it's it's interesting the raptors have a couple of other storylines that we'll follow with josh as well uh, baseball story jays against minnesota tonight rio at 13 and 8 goes for toronto 4 11 is the era uh, red Sox and Jays were off yesterday. The Yankees lost a tough one in Baltimore, 3-2 in 10 innings. Then the Yankees now sit on the outside. Can you believe that? After that 13-2 and run, uh, just they were unconscious, and now, well, they're, they have to be revived. So Toronto and Boston have the wild card. They're tied. The Yankees are a half game out with a big weekend ahead, certainly an opportunity for the Jays at home to Minnesota. And then next week on to Tampa, on to Minnesota, then day off, and then the Yankees in Baltimore at home. And that's it on the wild card game we trust. Um, if you want to watch some really good television, you know, SportsCenter, I, I, you know, great talent. There's no question about that. I love SportsCenter because, well, I used to do this show that um, – that sort of was preceded that, that preceded Sports Center. So I don't want to get into that, but but I think that that what you really want out of out of Sports Center is to be entertained, and you are on a nightly basis. But you also want to learn something. Last night they had this clip on from Steve Phillips, our baseball insider, and the CSI he did on Robbie Ray's uh, mechanics, the pitching mechanics that Pete Walker and the Blue Jays staff did to just slight adjustments. I'll just uh, recapture it for you. I hope you can see this in your mind. A uh, bit more of a body turn and lower the leg kick. The results are stunning. Uh, and and the way Steve Phillips presented this was, I mean, it, it just you always want to know the why. We know what happened. We can go over the results and, and all of that stuff. But you want to know the why, and I just found it so intriguing. We'll play parts of this for you later on. That they, you know, I, I immediately thought of Doc Holliday and, and what the the Jays did years ago to to sort of re rebuild his pitching motion and, and look how that turned out. And and they, it looks like they've done it with Robbie Ray. Well, it looks like well they have. So look at his numbers. And then I started thinking, well, you know, if if he appreciates that, then I'm sure he does one way or the 
other, that maybe that's a ticket to have him stay around and work with Pete Walker and the staff to, to actually get bigger and better. And I don't know where this goes, but it, it was a very intriguing piece. So we've got Steve Phillips. We've got Pascal Siakam to talk about. Uh, there's a lot of hockey stuff going on. There's the Evander Kane thing with ESPN's uh, uh, reporter, uh, and uh, I feel awkward about it because I really don't know. I don't want to. I don't like to, to jump to conclusions or, or assume or form opinions based on somebody um, sort of uh, sort of trying to respond to allegations is what I'm trying to say. So so the way I always look at these stories are: there's allegations, there's a response to, and they have the same weight because nobody knows what the truth is. And then there's the investigation. So really, in a long sort of way, in a, in a stumbly sort of way, what I'm trying to tell you is I always defer to the investigation because it's done by a neutral source and they sift through everything everybody has something to say but they sift through it all and and, and verify it and and then come up with a conclusion so that's where i'm going to stop on that one bill daly by the way uh said that the nhl will be 98 percent fully vaccinated and there will be cap relief to teams that have to suspend players because they are unvaccinated so that's good to know uh, a couple of other things draft uh, next summer the 2022 Entry draft be held in Montreal. It was supposed to be held there this year, and uh, a bit of a sideshow ensued with Montreal, but we'll steer off of that. You know what it is. Uh, the Prospects Tournament going on in Traverse City yesterday. Uh, yesterday afternoon, the Leafs lost 4-3 in overtime to Columbus. They had leads of 2-0 and 3-2. Columbus tied it, won in overtime. No comment required. And uh, St. Louis against Toronto at 3 this afternoon. If you're industrious, you can find it streaming somewhere. So Washington 30-29 over the Giants last night. Zig for Cassie is here from Sirius XM. Zig, how are you today, sir? Jim, I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good. Everything's good. That last check. Okay, okay. Every just went over it again, Zig. Everything is still in the same place. So, we're, so we're good. Uh, the thirty twenty nine. <laughs> the thirty twenty nine. I mean, this was an intriguing ending because of a lot of missteps, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, he uh, Hopkins had missed the field goal, but uh, Lawrence had lined up in the neutral zone. It was a clear, obvious mistake, and then, you know, he got a chance to retrieve him, uh, re- redeem himself, Hopkins did, and Washington was able to win this football game. You know, it was one of those type of games, Jim, where it was so bad it was good because the defense <laughs> – you know, we kept hearing about how vaunted Washington's was, and yeah, they licked Daniel Jones a few times in terms of uh, big hits and everything like that, but he was also able to make some big plays. Um, you know, then there was the Slayton, the obvious touchdown that that was dropped too, so that would come back to haunt them. And then Heineke's got a little bit of a, you know, a, a go-getter uh, type of attitude to him, like a gunslinger. I think even Joe Judge referred to that during the week, where it just seems as though that guy's not a afraid to you know throw some balls he had a late interception that almost came back to haunt them but you know this game had a lot of intrigue to it and you know it was just one of those type of games it was so bad it was good yeah and, and you know the Heineke story is fascinating for me because we hear we've got all these storylines about young quarterbacks or you know high profile quarterbacks in different spots and what the heck happens with Aaron Rodgers and then this guy basically resuscitated off the scrap heap comes in looks good except for that one late interception but he's an interesting story isn't he yeah he is i mean if people watch that wild card game you know between tampa and washington i thought taylor heineke uh, acquitted himself very well in that game it, it was one of those games where tampa had to really work hard and you know ultimately prevailed on their way to a, a super bowl championship but here's a guy old dominion not you know a big 
not a big school by any stretch of the imagination. And he, like you say, maybe was on the scrap heap a little bit, but Sometimes, you know, you got to look a little bit to the, the smaller schools and find the guys that are really hungry. And I had honestly thought, Jim, that uh, Heineke should have been the starter before the season even started. But, you know, they went with Ryan Fitzpatrick. It's unfortunate that uh, Fitz is hurt. Looks like he's going to be out at least six weeks. And it'll be interesting now. You know, I'm sure Ron Rivera crossed that bridge when they get to it. Whether, you know, if, if Heineke's playing so well, you know, does he lose his job? You know, there are coaches that have held that attitude that a, a starter doesn't lose his in, uh, because of injury doesn't lose his job. Well, if you got the hot hand here, something tells me that Heineke is going to be out there for quite a bit. I don't want to be too harsh in the Giants, but they are zero two. They had that game one. They had uh, they had a lot of uh, offensive uh, drives that turned into field goals that that should have been touchdowns and it said that bad teams find a way to lose is, is that too harsh no it's pretty accurate you know and i know there's a lot of criticism already in the new york area as you alluded to with you know with the, with them field goals thank gosh uh, graham gano has been mr automatic for them and this goes back to a criticism that if you remember before he became offensive coordinator of the giants that jason garrett was the head coach of the dallas cowboys and that was one thing that was always a criticism there was they would be able to move the ball up and down the field, but then you get into that red zone. I don't know if it's a case where they try to be too cute. They don't have enough confidence to execute plays in, in you know different spots, that kind of thing. But uh, that was a criticism they had then, and now it seems like it's carried over a little bit to the New York Giants. So, you know, it's one of those games where you got to cast those sevens instead of threes, and it does come back to bite you. But it's, that's been a criticism of a Jason Garrett offense, whether it was with the Cowboys or now with the Giants. That's been a criticism of his. Let's talk about Aaron Rodgers. I find this, you know, from a distance to be an intriguing story because when he speaks, it's almost like he's done one podium appearance too many. Um, and, you know, everybody's kicking him around. But but let's be honest here. They're, they're at home to the Lions on Monday night. Uh, there will right. be atonement here. There's no question about that. Well, you would hope so. I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, you can't play any worse if you're Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers. I mean, you know, New Orleans did a number on him. I mean, they were, you know, they were hitting him with regularity, uh, a couple of interceptions, and uh, Aaron just had no flow or rhythm offensively, and it just made you wonder, you know, all this charade and nonsense of him being traded, him not getting along with the GM, if all this stuff, the lack of preparation and all this, Jim, if this is a problem. Now, you would think at home, it's your home opener, it's on Monday night, against the division rival, you've pretty much had your way with with, you know, probably the last decade or so. But we saw with Detroit, you know, they may not be very good, but, you know, they played pretty hard. I mean, you look at the game Sunday against the 49ers, they were down 23 it was with just over a couple minutes to play. Boom, they get the two late touchdowns, and they had the ball, possible chance to drive and try to tie the game and whatever. So there's no quit there, but you would think, Green Bay couldn't be any worse, so we'll see where their focus is on Monday night. But if it gets to be something problematic, you know, this is a problem for uh, Brian Gutenkus, the GM, and obviously Matt LaFleur, the head coach. 
I find it intriguing. Just let me bounce something off. I mean, I think totally different scenarios, but does Aaron Rodgers this year remind you of Favre his last year with Green Bay? Ooh, uh, maybe. You know, I know, I know that was a charade, too. I remember all that summer, you know, you know, is he going to retire? Uh, is there a schism between – I remember that word schism. I'm like, where did somebody dig that up? Was it a slow news day, for goodness sake? I remember – you know, I remember they. I remember they had that news conference. I think it was at a casino of all places or whatever. And you know, waiting for Favre to say, "Well, I'm going to retire in this and that." Well, it's like basically, like, why are y'all here? You know, I'm not retiring. I'm not doing anything. And then it just got to be one of those things. It's like get on with it already. So um, I, I think there's a certain overtone to that. And you know, I, I think it's pretty clear, at least to me. I was a little surprised that. You know, the Packers didn't try to trade him uh, in the off season. I think it's pretty obvious at this point that somewhere down the road, and we saw it last week because he was able to get in there with the game out of hand, you know, Jordan Love getting some action. So it's just, to me, Jim, one of those matter of times before uh, Aaron Rodgers does play his final game in Green Bay. Yeah, it's, it's it's inevitable, right? I mean, it's going to happen. You just hope that things don't get silly and speed up the process because it just gets in the way of a, a marvelous exactly. career. Uh, so let's go to the local story. The Buffalo Bills uh, had a bad second half against a pretty good defensive team in Pittsburgh and, and now off to Miami. Is there any danger of the Bills going 0-2 out of the gate? I think it's entirely possible. You know, Miami plays good defense, uh, although, you know, people harken back to the season finale last year where the Bills used their reserves and still, you know, scored at will against Miami. But I got to think Brian Flores will have them focus for this one, although a story that's developing today, Jim, Will Fuller course was brought in former Notre Dame first round pick of the Houston Texans uh, was supposed to come back from his suspension but it's understood now that he will not play at least Sunday because of a personal matter so I don't know if this is becoming one of those storylines to follow if it something in the locker room and all that. I'm sure Coach Flores he spoke a little bit earlier so I'll be curious to hear what he actually said on this but to Sunday's game, I just think it's one of those things where, you know, uh, they did enough last week against New England. You got to think Buffalo um, will be armed and ready to go into this one. But, you know, we saw Josh Allen, a little bit too much hero ball last week. Those fourth down uh, calls, Jim came back to haunt them. So I think uh, this, this one's going to be nip and tuck. You know, how are the Bills going to be able to handle that withering South Florida heat as the game goes on? This one I could see coming down to a field goal or a touchdown or less, maybe a field goal difference there in Miami. Yeah, interesting. Uh, you know, suddenly uh, the, the Bills are on the spot. Everybody was was talking uh, a run at the Chiefs again and, and maybe a Super Bowl, but uh, this is the humbling part of it, isn't it? Well, it is, and I think, you know, and you saw it even in the the Buffalo News and some of the uh, websites that cover the Bills, and this is something that I know I've been talking about on my shows on uh, Sirius XM NFL Radio. It's now the expectation. How do you handle being one of the top teams? And some teams, Jim, they may not be able to handle it. So I'm sure we'll have more tests going forward. I think they play Kansas City again this year. So until you're able to handle the expectations, not read the press clippings, 
you know, like Josh Allen got his big contract. Is that somehow going to be something in the locker room? Only those guys know, but it's still way too early to determine that. But it is something to keep your eye on. How do they handle now that they're expected to be a contender in the AFC? Only time's going to tell. Yeah, that's one of the more intriguing things in professional sports, whether it's individual or as a team. Now that you're on top, what are you going to do about it? Not everybody succeeds at that. You are correct there. Yeah, absolutely. We're a team like Kansas City. You know, they they took their lumps, if you remember, in that AFC championship game against New England where they could have won the game, but they didn't. But instead, they built upon it. And now they've been two-time defending AFC champions, been back-to-back Super Bowls. So now they've developed sort of that culture. They've been able to handle those expectations and be up there every year. Buffalo's got to get to that point yet. Zig, bear with me here. I'm, I'm a conflicted man. I'm a lifelong Lions fan and a one-share oh, owner of the, of the one-share <laughs> owner of the Green Bay Packers. So, so I mean, I, <laughs> I here, here's wow. how I get through it. Here's how I get through it. I, I will. I look at Matthew Stafford playing for the Rams, and and I go, Yeah, I knew he was that good. I mean, that's fantastic, isn't it? <laughs> oh my gosh, Jim, you you. I'm telling you, man, they, you you need to be in like the penance or you know. Something Hall of Fame for being a Lions fan that long. My gosh. I'm surprised you don't have a picture of you with Bobby Lane hanging out, for goodness sake. Oh, please. You're opening sore wounds there. I mean, come on. It's the last time they were good. Yeah. I'm sorry. 1957. Anyway, Eisenhower was in office. Um, but uh, to, your, you know, to your point, um, Matthew Stafford might be the perfect fit for that Rams offense. Because Sean McVay, obviously, with his intricate play calls, you know, that's the difference between, say, Stafford and Goff, where Goff basically, you know, specializes on the play action pass. He is good at that, but then the other routes, maybe the arm isn't as good, the awareness isn't as good, whereas Sean can be more creative in the. You know, obviously the play calling and play to Stafford's strength. I mean, my gosh, that touchdown to Jefferson, he threw that sucker like 60 yards in the air, and then Jefferson got up and ran the rest of the way. Uh, his combination with Cooper Cup is very good. Uh, Robert Woods, the former Bills. So um, there's a guy that, you know, maybe you could be viewed upon as a compiler because he put up some nice stats, but, you know, never won a playoff game in Detroit. So is it because he couldn't lead? Is it because the Lions didn't surround him with enough talent? Maybe it's a little bit of both. But at least for one game, Jim, uh, they looked very good against the Bears team. You know, uh, they got their own quarterback quandary, if you will. How long do they stay with Dalton, or do they go with the rookie field? So at least for one week, um, I think McVay finally got his shiny new toy, and it worked out very well for him. I was impressed because, really, Detroit was so one-dimensional that I used to call him a fastball pitcher because all he could do is step back and, and heave the thing. But now he's got different looks and something to work with, aside from a defense. Oh, absolutely. I mean, gosh, you got, you know, arguably the most dominant uh, player in the game in Aaron Donald. You may have your best corner there uh, in Jalen Ramsey. And let's not forget that was a, you know, a top defensive unit. That's how Brandon Staley got his job, ironically enough, now in the same stadium 
but the co-tenant there with the Los Angeles Chargers. So he was, you know, the Rams clearly um, have a great defense. They've lost a couple guys, though, through free agency. They lost Johnson to Cleveland, uh, Ebicam, believes with the 49ers now. So uh, they did lose some uh, guys to free agency, but it looks like they've replenished well on that side of the ball. Uh, you know, the the, the night games, last uh, the opening Thursday night game was thrilling. Uh, Bucks over the Cowboys uh, last night uh, was uh, also it was a nail-biter right down to the end. And Sunday night, so uh, and also Monday night w- was good as well. Monday night with the, with the Raiders uh, winning over Baltimore, uh, that game was, was fantastic to watch. Did that upgrade your status in the Raiders? Um, I, I'm, we've seen them start fast before, Jim, so I'm going to kind of hold off because if you remember, last, I think what, the Raiders were 5-3 and three or 6-2 and two last year, and then it's become kind of a troublesome trend under John Gruden. They fade badly in the second half. Now, that was a good win for them, and don't get me wrong, I thought Derek Carr played well in that game, but now, you know, you lose a Mariota for a few weeks, so... Uh, they're going to have to address the backup spot, and I think they changed things up there if they want to run you know, some RPO type of plays. So now you don't have Mariota to do that. Uh, the defense is still a question. I mean, when you see you know, the fourth overall pick of the draft two years ago is essentially a healthy scratch, that really raises your eyebrows there. So, um, And let's not forget, Baltimore, you're down arguably one of the top five corners in the game now. Marcus Peters out for the year. You're down your three running backs because of, I mean, how freaky is that? You lose three running backs before the season even starts. So now you got to sign Latavius Murray off the street. you got to sign a Le'Veon Bell off the street. So, uh, And Lamar wasn't his best Monday night. So I would say it was a good win for the Raiders. Got to put it in a little bit of context, but they cannot fade like they do second halves of the year before you can take them seriously. Sig, what's your? I know you're going to watch them all, but what's your 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 pick of the week to watch? Oh, geez, there's there's quite a few games, Jim, that uh, you would definitely want to keep your eye on. Um, be intrigued to see, you know, obviously the, the Chargers and the Cowboys. You know, how will Dallas now uh, down five regulars be able to handle the uh, the Chargers offense and, and you know see if Dak uh, can play as well as he did in the season opener. You know, you've got uh, Sunday night, Kansas City and Baltimore. To me, the the, uh, the Chiefs are still uh, the gold standard. One of those maybe sneaky, interesting games might be the Saints and the Panthers because I think Carolina's on to something in terms of, you know, the build. Uh, Sam Darnold played well enough against his former team last week. McCaffrey's back there. And now you got, you know, Jameis Winston uh, the quarterback for the Saints, who, you know, five touchdown passes, didn't even throw for 150 yards last week. So intriguing enough. Two former high picks now trying to salvage their careers with new teams. Saints and the Panthers might be one of those sneaky good games on Sunday. Zig, really appreciate you stopping by. Enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much. Jim, as always, man, thank you. Thank you. That's uh, Zig Fricassi from Sirius XM NFL. He's the host of NFL coverage there. And uh, I, I really enjoyed the conversation and, and appreciate his uh, condolences for my support of the Lions. It's it's a tough one, but we all have things that we have to bear with. Um, so here we have another story that we didn't get to earlier. Uh, and this is according to reports. Uh, Javenko set to return to TFC. 
So that would be interesting, wouldn't it now? Hmm. Uh, we'll follow that as we go along today. Coming up next, we're going to deal with Pascal Siakam, story in the New York Times, uh, and, and just figure out, you know, where this is going to go and, and where the rest of the Raptors are going to go as they get set to uh, launch their first full season back home again. Yep, things are starting to get somewhat normal. This is Toronto Today on TSN 1050, live in your radio, live streaming, podcasting, and on-demand on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto through the iHeartRadio Canada app. Now, back to Toronto Today. Toronto Today, Jim Taddy reporting here until 1 o'clock, then it's Matthew Koss with gameplay, then overdrive, then later on tonight, Argonaut Football Live from Regina as the uh, Argos are on the road at 3-2, and two, facing Saskatchewan at 3-2. and two. So plenty of stuff on the way on the schedule for TSN 1050. Let's deal now with the Raptors. Pascal Siakam uh, feature in a New York Times piece yesterday. Uh, and I guess the way to describe it would be there seemed to be some confusion or I don't know how to describe it. I think he thought one thing and the reality was something else, and, and that sounds a little harsh. But let's uh, talk to Josh Lewenberg about that. Josh, welcome in. How are you today, sir? Good, Jim. How you doing? Good, good. Um, when I read that piece in the New York Times, there, I think there was a, an assumption that when he got the max contract after the the uh, NBA title, that there was an assumption on his part. And I don't know. It just seems a little confusing. What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I read the interview. I thought a lot of it was, was candid, was fair, was honest. Um, I think for a lot of people, the thing that stood out might be something that's a little bit misinterpreted is some confusion over what the expectation was or what his role was after signing that max contract that, to, to quote Pascal, that there wasn't as much communication as he thought there needed to be, that he was the guy. Now, of course, a lot of people taking issue to this because, and I think this it is just assumed is that when you sign the max contract, of course you're going to be the guy. And I think just naturally, given where the team was at that time too, with Kawhi leaving, Pascal being the number two offensive option for that championship team, obviously the number one option leaves in free agency. Of course, Pascal is going to be the guy. And I, I think from my perspective anyway, that was always pretty clear publicly from Nick Nurse and Masai Ujiri. They've always talked about Pascal being the guy. I'm reading in between the lines here. I think maybe what he meant by that is at the time, of course, the face of the Raptors, the face of the organization wasn't Pascal Siakam, even if he got the max contract, even if he was the guy. We all know that this was Kyle Lowry's team. There was no question about that for legacy reasons. And I think just in terms of his value on the court, even if he wasn't the leading scorer or the number one offensive option, this has been Kyle Lowry's team. So maybe that's what he meant, that even though he was getting the money, even though his usage was sky high, that this technically wasn't his team, because there is something in that article, in that interview about that now those conversations are happening, that communication is happening about this being his team. I think that maybe that's what he meant. And that's something that Lowry alluded to as well. As some point over the last few months, he talked about how sort of this is an unofficial passing of the torch now that Fred Van Vliet and Pascal Siakam can take on more responsibility now that he's not around. It's something that the team has talked about here as well. So I, I do see some of that, even though it was maybe worded poorly. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the way you've said it there, and, and going over what I read, it almost sounds like there needed to be a conversation to say that, you know, you are the guy, but the original guy is still here, so we're going to transition this at some point. I mean, as simple as that, right? And you're right. This is the transition here. This is very much a new era for the Raptors. I know they've been segueing in this direction for a while, and that was the idea for them too, right? Because it's never a smooth transition when you're just like, boom, there you are. You're right in the rebuild now. You're bringing in young guys, and that's not what this was. The, The idea here was always, draft well and develop while also winning. So this has been a gradual process where you're grooming Siakam, you're grooming Van Vliet, you bring in OG Ananobi, uh, and and now you add in Scotty Barnes. But most of these guys have learned under Lowry and previously Ibaka and Gasol, some of the best. A lot of these guys were here for the championship, and now they're going to mentor Barnes and some of these other young guys. So it is sort of a a long-term process that this team has had in mind. But I do think when you look at what needs to happen here with Van Vliet and, and Siakam taking on bigger leadership roles with Lowry gone, they are the guys. Siakam is the guy now, and there's more to it than just the on-court product. Obviously, from a, a basketball standpoint, this has been a, a rough year for Siakam. He knows that. He talked about that as well in this interview with the New York Times of how he needs to grow and get better as a basketball player. Another obstacle standing in his way, of course, now is the recovery from shoulder surgery. He's going to miss at least some time um, going into the season and not having the full offseason to work on his game is going to hurt as well. I do think there are steps that he needs to take from a basketball standpoint, but being the guy, I mean, there's more to it than just the basketball element and I think we saw that last year as well is there was some frustration that Siakam maybe channeled in in the wrong way Uh, the altercation with Nick Nurse after that game against Houston uh, him uh, missing a game early in the season for disciplinary reasons against New York on, on New Year's Eve we know that I mean obviously he's had a lot of success team and individual success in his pro career last year was probably the first year where he had to learn how to deal with some uh, of that frustration of that failure in a way that he hadn't before and and that's I think the next evolution of him as being a leader and being the guy as well is you not only have to be the guy when things are going well but you have to know how to be the guy when things aren't going well and hopefully that's something that he was able to pick up and Van Vliet was able to pick up from being with a guy like Lowry, who also didn't deal with losing very well. You never want to be uh, okay with and accepting of losing, but you've got to be able to channel it in the right direction and and be that leader off the court that this team is going to need Pascal and company and and Van Vliet to be going forward. Yeah, I mean, this is something that evolves. I mean, we can all remember when Kyle Lowry first became a Raptor. I mean, there was a struggle there, uh, clearly. And and I'm talking about top-end consistency, meaning doing it, every night, regardless of the game situation, regardless of the score, regardless of, of where your team is. And, and that that's really a missing piece for Pascal, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, there is a learning curve. I also think, I mean, this is, as I said, it's been a really unusual year, a year plus now, I guess, year and a half for Siakam, a guy who has had a ton of success in the early stages of his career. And it's sort of, I think it's, it's frustrating sometimes not only for players but for fans when 
growth isn't linear. And, and it's not always linear. In most cases, it isn't. But I think the expectation for a lot of people players and fans is that you're taking those steps, right? That you're, you're a, a bench player, then you're a starter, then you're an all-star, then you're a superstar, and you're just gradually getting better until eventually you hit your peak in your prime years, and then there's a gradual glee, decline. But that's not always the way that it works. Sometimes you hit a, a roadblock here or there, you take a step back and then have to take a, learn from it and take a few steps Forward, and I, I do think it, it, what's fascinating about the Siakam situation for me is there's been such a drastic shift in the way that he's perceived with a lot of this fan base, not all of it, but with a lot of it, because remember, he was beloved in, in this city and, and still is, but I, I think it was just like universally before, right? He was yeah. a, a huge piece in that championship team, and it's not just the basketball stuff, too. I think the story is what made Siakam such a fan favorite, right? Because... He uh, starts basketball, picks up the game late in life. He comes here from Cameroon, where he grew up and was studying to be a priest. He overcomes the tragic loss of his father and dedicates his career to his father's memory. He is a surprise late first-round pick and then turns himself into a starter and an all-star and an all-NBA-caliber player. Um, But... Then the, the bubble happens, and, and this past year, the inconsistency, the off-court issues. And I do think some people have soured on him and just don't look at him the same way. And he knows that too, right? Like, he's off of social media, but he hears these things. He knows what people are, are saying. So I, I do think there's probably some frustration there. And listen, the, the criticism is warranted. I'll add that because, to, to be clear, the, the criticism from a basketball standpoint It is fair, and that's what you sign up for. That's what he's being paid for. The personal attacks, and that's something that he talked about in that interview as well, are completely unfair. And and those people who are are attacking him personally, they need to get a life. They need to stop with that. But I think there are a few things here to remember for anybody that has soured on Siakam, either as a player or as a person. One, he's still the same person, right? He's still the same guy, that remarkable story, that that background that he has, that hasn't changed. And then two is that growth isn't always linear and that he's still just 27, he's still young, he's still growing and getting better as a player, and I'm confident that we haven't seen the best of Pascal Siakam. So let's put it this way. If players were – if you could buy stock in a player, you could buy stock in Pascal Siakam. I'm buying, buying, buying that stock right now because it's low and it's going to be going up. I don't know when, but it's going to be going up. Well, look, honestly, some people have their analysis, and it's not anybody in the business, but those on the outside base their analysis on the fact that they lost a bet or that somebody got well paid, and I'll just leave it at that. I, the thing I want to talk about, because we talked about this on, on Raptors broadcast, um, the, the, the gaping hole they had for most of last year at the five spot, how much would that have affected his ability? You know, I think it affected a number of guys. Like Chris Boucher, for example, had a great season last year, but you wonder if it would have been even better had he been cast in a more uh, appropriate role. Because I think it's pretty clear at this point in his career, and Nick Nurse talks about it all the time, that he is more of a natural four than a five because of some of his physical limitations. It's just his natural position. And, And he was much better later in the season when he was playing next to 
Ken Birch and, and even Aaron Baines coming off the bench. I, I think it was probably better for Baines and it was definitely better for Boucher to be next to another big man that could take up some of that space and battle with those big physical fives on the other end. And I think the same could be said for Pascal Siakam, who at times last year was playing out of position uh, at the five. I do think that's, that's tough for, for guys. There's pros and cons to it, right? Like you look at the roster now and I wouldn't say, Oh, well, the Raptors have addressed the, the five position and now things are going to be much better and make more sense from a positional standpoint this year. Bringing back Ken Birch, I think was important. Um, and he's probably going to start when Siakam's healthy. He's the foreman there. So I think that probably helps to a degree. But this is still a, a team that's pretty undersized. They're, they're unique in the sense that you've got a lot of guys that sort of occupy the same space. The 6'8", 6'9", versatile forward with the long wingspan that can play and defend multiple positions. It's going to be really interesting from that standpoint, because I do think the Raptors are looking at this and saying, let's experiment a little bit. We know Nick Nurse loves to do that. And Masai does too. Let's try something new. Let's really test the limits of positionless basketball. So I think there's some benefits there, but there's also a bit of a disadvantage for some guys like Siakam and, and Boucher who might be asked to do something that maybe they're not comfortable doing. But I do think, like, if they're able to do that, and if they get some reps and experience doing that, maybe it is best for the long term because it allows them to go out there and do some things that maybe they wouldn't have been able to do a couple of years ago. It expands their game. It expands what their their limits are. And if nothing else, I think this will be a good year for Nick Nurse to get a sense of what those limits are, what guys are able to do, and maybe just as importantly, what they're not able to do. Okay, so if when everybody's healthy, if this is the starting lineup, Freddie, Trent Jr., OG, Pascal, and, and Birch, if that is the starting lineup, in my opinion, that's Freddie's team. How about you? What do you think about that? Yeah, that, no question. I, I think that's why, sort of going back to what we were saying earlier, where Pascal is clearly the guy in terms of like the future of this team when he signed that max contract, but in terms of the, who, who the franchise, who the face of the franchise was, who the leader was, that was clearly Lowry. Lowry leaves, and yeah, I think from that standpoint, it opens things up a little bit more for somebody like Siakam to take more ownership over where this is going. But I agree with you. I think just naturally speaking, the successor there for Lowry in a number of respects is Fred Van Vliet. Positionally, obviously, this is Van Vliet's team. He's the point guard. He's going to be the guy that's running the offense. But I just think in terms of the personality and the leadership style, that fits more with, with the way that Van Vliet leads than the way that Siak and, and Siakam would be the first to admit that, right? And he's talked about that before, too. Guys that are different, they're, they're different types of leaders in the NBA. DeMar DeRozan is a great example of it because I, I thought that as he got older, more experienced, and matured during his years with the Raptors, he did take on more of a leadership role, but it was a different type of leadership role than Lowry. And it doesn't have to be one or the other. One is better than the other type of leadership or um, – you know, like you, you sort of need both sides of that, and that's why I thought Lowry and DeRozan paired so well for so many years because there was sort of DeMar that more of a quiet leadership style, leading by example, really earned respect in the locker room in that way and found his spots on and off the court. 
to lead in a quieter way. Maybe it meant going up to a younger player and really taking him under his wing. And then Lowry, of course, was, was more vocal. And I think Van Vliet is that way in spite of the fact that he's still a very young player. But I think he's always had that. That's just a personality thing. So I think and we know that Van Vliet and Siakam are close. They came up together. They have been close for a number of years. Maybe we're looking at the next evolution of, like, the Lowry-DeRozan pairing where you've got the quieter Siakam who can lead by example and needs to do a better job of leading by example on and off the court. And Van Vliet, the vocal uh, point guard in the Lowry mold, I think that that's probably where this team wants to go with those two as the 1A and 1B building around the other pieces that they have in Scotty Barnes and OG Ananobi and some of these other guys. What's intriguing to me always, and we've talked about this many times in the Raptors broadcast as well, is their player development. Uh, because you could look at the starting five and, and, and have an opinion about the team, but, but it's, it's the second, it's the rotation, uh, it's the second tier players, and they're usually pretty young. And last year, Malachi Flynn went from nowhere to somewhere. And, and so I would expect more out of him this year. I would expect, uh, Scotty and also Precious to, to emerge. That's the fun part of where they are, isn't it? Yeah, it's something that they've always done well and they've had confidence in. And let's face it, the Scotty Barnes pick at number four was a bet on their player development system. I don't think there's much question that Jalen Suggs is the more NBA-ready prospect right now. I don't even think the Raptors would dispute that. But when you're drafting at fourth overall, a luxury the Raptors haven't had over the years, they've done well picking from the bottom of the draft, selecting from the end of the first round, second round, even finding gems outside of the draft. But when you're drafting that high, I'm not sure that the mindset is, okay, who's the most NBA ready right now? You're trying to hit a home run. You're really looking for who is the best guy here in two or three years, four years, five years down the road. Who's going to be the best NBA player? And especially when you're a team like the Raptors that has – the utmost confidence in their player development system, you bet on that and you say, okay, we're going to take this guy that might be more of a longer term project and we're going to refine certain areas of his game. In the case of Scotty Barnes, it's his offense in particular, his shooting. We're going to improve those things. We're going to work with him. We're going to help him grow. And, they can see that vision of, of what he can become. Of course, I also think it helps to bet on a player like that when he has the type of approach and work ethic that Scotty Barnes does. And we're starting to see those things, learning more about the type of player that he is, reading his player's Tribune piece today. You can see that drive, that fire, that really uh, turned the Raptors uh, into Scotty Barnes fans during the pre-draft process. So, yeah, I, I think that that's what that was about, is their their player development system, the fact that they're confident in it. And then I also think, and this is something that Bobby Webster has talked a lot about, it's restocking the farm system, essentially. Baseball teams do it all the time. We saw it with the Jays after Alex Anthopoulos went out and traded all, all of those prospects to go all in on uh, David Price and Troy Tulowitzki and, and that team to go and make the playoffs. So the Raptors basically did the same thing during the championship season or ahead of it. They trade Jakob Pertl in, in, the, in the deal that goes and, and, and brings in Kawhi. 
you, you trade a few prospects, Galan Wright, to go and get Marc Gasol. Basically, that bench mob, all those great young players that the Raptors had accumulated, well, you, you go out and you push your chips in when you believe it's time to, um, to contend. And the Raptors probably thinking the same thing now, but first you have to restock that cupboard. And that's what they've done here over the last few years, and that's what they're trying to do, bringing in young players like Barnes. They really like um, Delano, the, the second-round pick from Toronto. Um, you mentioned Malachi Flynn. So I think that's where they're at right now as an organization, is they're in the restock, the cupboard phase, and, and looking ahead to ultimately the next phase of being able to Hopefully one day either you're grooming these guys to, to be a part of a, a championship contender or you're considering uh, getting a few of them, putting them in a deal and going out and, and getting that, that piece that you need to be able to c- compete for a championship like they did back in 2018 with Kawhi. Josh, thanks very much. Enjoy your weekend. All right, Jim. Take care. Talk soon. That's Josh Lewinberg, our Raptors reporter. I love working with him on the Raptors broadcast and also Nikki Reyes as well. So we've got our schedule and we'll be back. The three, the three of us will be back again covering the Raptors. It, it's going to be fun. Um, you know, I didn't ask about Gordon Dragic, sort of the reluctant Raptor, but he's in there as well. Um, coming up next, we're going to deal with Steve Phillips. This is a great piece of television. If you're around a, a set and you can watch SportsCenter or go online and find it, uh, this is a, a, just a, a, one of the all-time great pieces to help you understand how you resuscitate or improve on a pretty good pitcher and make him Cy Young material. This is Toronto Today on TSN 1050, live on your radio, live streaming, podcasting, and on-demand on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto through the iHeartRadio Canada app. Now, back to Toronto Today. Toronto Today, final moments, exactly final four minutes of moments here on the Friday broadcast and, of course, for the week. If you're looking for Leafs Lunch, it returns before the start of the Leafs season. In the meantime, we will grind on, setting up the stage for Matt Cause and gameplay at 1 o'clock. Let's get back to the baseball story. Just as a sort of a recap, Jays open a three-game series against the Twins at the ball yard. Tonight, Ryu on the mound. A brutal loss for the Yankees against the O's. Gave it away in the ninth last night. Not that we're crying about that. The Yankees reliever threw a wild pitch with two outs in the ninth that uh, led in the tying run, and uh, they drop a half game. They lost 3-2-10, and 10, drop a half game behind the Jays and Red Sox in the wild card race. Uh, this is must-see television. It's on SportsCenter. Steve Phillips talking about Robbie Ray and, and the adjustments they have made to his mechanics to turn him from a good pitcher to a Cy Young capable pitcher. Take a listen. Robbie Ray's always been an intriguing pitcher. He has great stuff, and the strikeout numbers in his record certainly indicate that, but he's had difficulty throwing strikes. And when a pitcher can't throw strikes, the first thing you look at are his mechanics. Every team out there wanted to get their hands on this guy thinking that they could try to fix him. When he was in Arizona, they actually did try to fix him, but here was the problem, was that he was so quick in his delivery. The pace of it was so quick that he never got himself to a balanced position over the pitching rubber, where he was at a perpendicular position to load everything and deliver it to the plate. Because he was so quick, he was leaking his body forward, and his arm was dragging behind, and he couldn't locate the pitches that he wanted to because his front foot landed in a different spot all the time because he didn't have the right pace. When he came over to the Toronto Blue Jays, Pete Walker, the pitching coach, identified the problem and fixed the problem, not looking for a workaround. 
And so what the Blue Jays did is they slowed him down a lot in his delivery. The pace was much slower. And they got him to understand and believe that when his knee came up and his leg kick, he needed to be perpendicular with his back leg over the pitching rubber. That allowed him to gather himself completely. He also added about a quarter turn, turning his body a little more toward right field, giving him more time for that stride to the plate. And his normal swing of his arm allowed him to get to the consistent release point. And now his foot hits the same spot. His arm consistently gets to that exact same point, and he can throw the ball over the plate. A dramatic difference between Arizona and Toronto. Oh, and that's a yes guy right there. I mean, that's a fabulous piece. Uh, if you can see it, you'll see that, you know, when that, that cheering noise was going on, it's a split screen that shows him, uh, shows you how he was in Arizona and how he is with the Blue Jays. So congrats to uh, Pete Walker and the staff of the Blue Jays for finding that little hitch in the delivery, fixing it, and reaping the, the uh, rewards from it. Just a marvelous piece of, of coaching. Um, and the final moments here, let, let me tell you that Otani has been scratched for the Friday night uh, pitching uh, schedule because of a Sore arm will not pitch, may not pitch again this season, according to Joe Madden, uh, manager of uh, Otani's uh, Angels, and, and so that that's an interesting situation because as we get close to the end of the broadcast, it uh, creates the musical question: Does this open the door for Vladdy in the MVP race? Does it? Well, I mean, you know, if Vladdy goes on a tear, maybe it forces some people to, to rethink that. We will see. So Jays against Minnesota, and uh, then go on to Tampa and Minnesota next week, as detailed earlier. Uh, coming up, Matt Cause and gameplay as he goes over the weekend lines, all kinds of stuff going on, and uh, Matt Cause is next. Thanks for joining us on Toronto today. Have yourself a great weekend, and we'll chat on Monday.